Please turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, and uh, we're going to read of its entirety. So when you're there, please rise, and this is the reading of God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar then, he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought it in, the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wife, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods and of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave, gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of, chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but... They could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve puzzle problems, were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The king was, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of exile of Judah, and the king of my father brought from Judah. Brought from Judah. I have heard of that the spirit of, God, of the gods is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have, brought, have been brought in before me to read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of, ma of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your, and give your, your, your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most... High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared him, feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would be humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from, from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkey. 
He was fed grass like an ox. His body was met with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And you, son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of this house have been bought bought before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was the hand was set and his writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekil, Parson. This is interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekil, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Mendes and the Parisians, Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and the Daniel was clothed purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mende, received kingdom, being about 62 years old. This was a reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. In the first four chapters of Daniel, we saw the rise and fall of the great King Nebuchadnezzar. And during his reign for about 40 years, we saw that through many different experiences that King Nebuchadnezzar learned a very valuable and tough lesson. That it is God who is the true king and ruler over heaven and earth. Chapter 4 ends with his famous last words as Nebuchadnezzar says, Those who walk in pride, he, that being God, is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar had learned this ultimate lesson that though he is a king, that even he is subject to God, the God of heaven, the God of all things. Today as we explore chapter 5, it's obvious to us that Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar, has no idea what he's in for. Nebuchadnezzar was so focused on building his kingdom, yet in comparison we see this next king is so focused on throwing a party. In 2006, a dramatic comedy movie called Stranger Than Fiction came out. It scored a 7.5 on the IMBD for those who are interested and 73% on Rotten Tomato. Not bad, right? Not bad. I think it's worth the watch. Has a very interesting plot, and there are some overlays in our narrative today. And so this movie opens up with the narrator introducing the main character named Harold Crick, who is a senior agent for the IRS and lives a really simple but strange and meticulous life. We find out that as the movie goes on, the narrator is a British woman by the name of Karen, and she also happens to be a character in this movie and she is trying to finish her novel and she is in a writer's block and somehow these two characters merge in in an unexplainable but whimsical way where the main character of this British author's book just so happens to be Harold Crick in the real life. 
And so we as the audience, as we're watching the movie, we get to witness how this character's life and events is dictated by this author who's writing the story, who she thinks is fiction and just kind of coming from her mind. And we see the comedy and the drama that plays out as Harold Crick is subjected to this narrative and this author. And as the movie goes on, Harold starts to hear the narrator's voice in his head, just like we as the audience would. And then in the movie, he's like, who's saying that? Who, what do you mean? No, don't do that. And he's trying to communicate and react. And, and he's trying to figure out what is happening. Who is this author? Why am I caught up in all this? So he seeks out this professor of writing. His name is Professor Julius. And he goes to him and he explains what's going on. And the professor obviously initially thinks, hey, I think you're crazy. But you know what? I'll humor you. And he says, it's probably important that you try to figure out what kind of character or what kind of story you find yourself in. So he says, listen for some cues. Are you in a comedy? Are you in a tragedy? Are you in a drama? And maybe that'll help you figure out what's going on and, and what's going to happen. And Harold replies to the professor and he says, I don't know what's happening, but the author said something along the lines of little did he know. And Professor Jules freaks out. He's like, little did he know? Little did he know. He's like, I've written papers on little did he know. I used to teach a class based on little did he know. I mean, I once gave an entire seminar on little did he know. Son of a gun, Harold. Little did he know means that there's something he doesn't know. Means that there's something you don't know. Did you know that? And he, and he goes on to say how that type of writing, that type of style is a third-person omniscient, meaning that the author, the writer, knows everything of what's going to happen, yet the character does it. And it's an approach to a story that shows us that this character, though he is set in the larger story, though you would think it's so obvious to him what is going on and what's going to happen, has no idea. So yet again, in the book of Daniel, we see another story in chapter 5 that's true by all accounts, yet at the same time is stranger than fiction. The new king of Babylon realizes to some degree that there is an omniscient narrator who is sovereign over everything. He sees this mysterious message written on the wall, and he's shocked, and he doesn't know what to do with it. So once more, we see Daniel being summoned to interpret. And little did King Belshazzar know that the God of Daniel, the God of heaven, the one who sets up kings and brings them down, is the same God who is trying to speak and give a warning to King Belshazzar. Little did he know that God is the true king of the great feast. And that's our main point if you look up, that God is the true king of the main feast. And we're just going to look at two aspects, the great feast and the great reminder. Look at the beginning of chapter 5, the opening lines. This is what it says. And try to pay attention to the details. And, and, and just on a side note, if, if the reading of the Bible is boring to you, just, just slow down and, and, and read it with some imagination and try to figure out what's going on. I There's so much detail here, especially in the book of Daniel. Look at what it says. This is the opening lines of chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And so you can imagine that there's this great banquet, this great feast. There's thousands of people. There's people of nobility, lords, 
We're told there's wives, concubines. You can tell there's music. And he sits in the front soaking it all in. And we're told that he drinks wine. He drinks it all in. He's sitting there soaking it all in, drinking in front of him. Belsajar continues, when he tasted the wine... Getting notes of tonic, new age, post-chateau. Smells like, I don't know why. I've watched a documentary on sommeliers, and they always say it smells like a fresh can of tennis balls. It's something, one of the things they reach for. But you can, it says, he tasted the wine. And he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought so that the king... And the lords, the wives, the concubines might drink from it. It makes you think, one, this king is full of himself. Two, it must have been some really good wine, right? Those of you guys who appreciate wine or whiskeys know that the, the type of glass or chalice makes a difference. And so you can imagine Belsadar sitting there drinking this wine and saying, you know what? I need a chalice worthy of this wine. And he says, go bring those vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar took from the vessel, from the house of God when he invaded and took over Jerusalem. Bring those cups that are made of gold and of silver. Bring those cups that were dedicated to God so that I can drink from it because I'm the king and I deserve it. And all my guests who are here ought to drink of this good wine from cups of silver and gold. All my lords, all my wives, all my concubines. So they brought in the gold vessels that they had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, the concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so it reminds us once more, although we're all the way down in chapter 5, although about 40 years has passed and King Nebuchadnezzar is no more, that there is going to be a foreshadow of some kind of repeat where God is going to once more show a proud and boisterous and full of himself king that God is the true king of heaven and earth. And we see this picture, the opening lines of chapter 5. Because, because remember, we're, we're coming from chapter 4 where we witness one of the most utterly terrifying and horrific accounts of King Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind, becoming like a creature and a beast, and living in the fields, eating grass, being soaked with the morning dew for seven periods of time. And, and in this humbling of a king, we now we go into chapter 5 and we see King Belshazzar almost making the same mistake. We see this grand feast of, of, of gluttony and drunkenness. We see this grand feast filled with debauchery that exudes an indignant decadence as a mock god. It's an obvious showcase, a display, a spectacle for all to see how great the new king is and how able he is to show his people a good time. Food, wine, entertainment. You know, this, to some degree, this represents the fullness and the showcasing and the display and the spectacle of the things of this world that often are brought before us, that often tempts us and says, you know what? You can have it all. The food, the wine, the entertainment, the joy. Drink from cups of gold and vessels of silver 
and live like there's no tomorrow. And we learn from the previous chapters before, but I'll remind us that the world can give us so many things to fill our souls, but it cannot save our souls. And as we witness this party, this banquet, this gluttony, this drunkenness, and this mockery of God happening, we see that there is about to be a sudden twist of events. At the peak of this irreverent celebration, we're told that suddenly appears a hand like a human out of thin air, and it starts to write on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite of the lampstand. you got to love the details here. Opposite of the lampstand, so everyone can see. It's in a place where the light is shining, and everyone can see what's happening. It's not just the king. It's not a vision. It's not his imagination. He's not drunk. He's not hallucinating. It's happening right there in front of thousands of his lords, his wives, his concubine. You can imagine the music stopping, the plates dropping, and everyone is shocked, and they see writing on the wall. Ah! Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Excuse me, you know, I'm, I am, you know, a little bit drawn to the dramatics. I'm sorry if I startled your children or, or upset you and agitated you. But out of the blue, at the height of this dinner party, all this decadence, the Lord puts everything to a stop and writes a warning on the wall. And as this shocking and mysterious hand starts to write on the wall, this is what we're told. The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. You can imagine as he's sitting there with his belly full of food and wine, holding his chalices taken from the house of God. He sees this happening. We're told that his color changed, that he got flushed, and that his knees knocked. And he is sitting there utterly shocked. Ian Duguid, a pastor and a scholar, notes that the literal translation of this Aramaic text, that it, the knots of his joints were loosed, most probably is not literal, but it could be a saying that connotes that he actually lost his bodily functions, meaning that he, out of fear, relieved himself. That he C-R-A-P-E-D himself right then and there in the shock of all that is happening. Filled with so much decadence, yet standing there in shock, soiled and completely stunned. Have you ever soiled yourself? No, I'm just kidding. It's a humbling experience. What? Hey, if you've never soiled yourself, baby, you haven't lived. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. I just, I'm, I'm too immature to pass off a poop joke. But, uh, but this is what's happening in this utter scene of decadence and celebration with this king who thinks he's got so much and he believes he's being so benevolent and generous by giving everyone all these things. The Lord writes on the wall a warning for him, directly for him and all those who follow him. The story continues as you would expect if you've been with us in this series. The king yelled for the enchanters, bring the enchanters, bring the Chaldeans, bring the astrologers. Bring someone who can figure out what this means. And you can imagine people in the distance. What you need to do is call the janitor. Clean up on aisle six. The king soiled himself. 
And obviously, again, there's no surprise. No matter who the king calls in, all the experts of the time, no one is able to figure out what this means. It's a shock. It's a mystery. It has everyone by suspense. Yet no one really knows what it means. So we're told that the queen mother comes in. And you can see almost the pitiful nature of all this, right? Almost like a, like a young boy who, who, who's just so immature and pitiful. He's just sitting there sore with himself. He thinks he's the man, and he's sitting in his own soil, and he's confused, and he's scared and filled with fear. And what happens? Mommy comes in. The queen mother comes in, and he says, O king, live forever. Remember there is a man that your father or your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, set. His name is Daniel. And during the time when Nebuchadnezzar reigned, he was able to interpret these dreams, these mysteries, and solve these riddles. Call upon him. Call upon him. So Daniel is brought in, and Daniel is given the task. And the king here says, although you would think he's utterly humbled, he says, if you're able to do this, I will clothe you in purple, I will give you a gold chain, and you will be the next ruler of Babylon. This foolish king still thinks he has something to give, that he has some kind of authority to pass down the crown. And so he, he, he makes this ridiculous promise, and this is what Daniel says. This is bold. Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your reward to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And so the great reminder after the great feast. Daniel begins with a history lesson. <clears throat> now I know none of, us, none of us like it when someone starts with a history lesson and tries to teach us a lesson, but bear with us here. Daniel begins with a history lesson. He reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar was only great because God allowed him to be. Likewise, that every time Nebuchadnezzar was puffed up with pride, the Lord humbled him. And Daniel reminds the new king, Belshazzar, what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar just in chapter 4. If you look with me, this is what he says in chapter 5, 21 to 23. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. What he's saying is, new king Belshazzar, remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. When he was puffed up, the Lord humbled him, made him like a beast, like a creature, until he was humbled to the point where he knew that the God of heaven, the Most High, is the one who rules kingdoms of mankind and sets over them who he will. And then this is what he says. He says, and you, his son, you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He's saying, King Belshazzar, you knew this. You were educated in the royal court. You grew up with your history lessons. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and you ought to have known who God is in light of all that he has done in this kingdom of Babylon by the ways of his mighty works, not only through Daniel and his friends, but also in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. You knew all this, and, at, and yet you have not humbled your heart. But you have lifted up 
yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, in whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel is saying, King Belshazzar, this is a warning. I love this line. But the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. In fact, you have mocked. The God who holds your very breath, your life, in his hand, the one who knows all of your ways and is sovereign over them, the God who has you, great King Belzer, in the palm of his hand, you have mocked him by getting drunk and drinking from his vessels. Basically, you knew the truth about God, yet you still chose to mock him. And how often do you and I do that? Right? We, not be, we might not exactly be like this king. In fact, most of us probably don't have the decadence and the ability to throw such a grand party. But if we did, we would. At least I would, I think. If we're honest, how much of us are similar? And when we hear the truth about God, we suppress that truth for a lie and continue on Monday morning to chase after, run after, invest, pour into, cling on to these things that are fleeting. And how often when we reach that success do we forget about God and almost in a mocking sense say, you know what, look at all that I have done. Look at my bank account. Look at the investments I've made in the stock market and crypto and this and that and real estate. Look at all the legacy, the kingdom I've done. Look at all the ways that people under me are benefiting. How often do we get puffed up like this? And it's another reminder as we find ourselves so easily puffed up. Right? There's a saying, you know, someone's just blowing smoke up into you. And, and that's all it takes for us to get so puffed up thinking that we can do whatever we choose, that we have full authority, autonomy, and power, but we're humbled once more as we hear the account of this new king, that it is God who is sovereign. And so this is Daniel's interpretation. And look up, this is what Daniel says. Mene, numbered. The days of your kingdom is numbered, O king, and is brought to an end. But we see on the wall, Mene, Mene. Perhaps meaning that it's been counted twice. This is a sure thing. Your days, the days of your kingdom has been numbered and it will come to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and are found wanting. You have been measured. You have been weighed, O king. And despite all your decadence, despite all your gold and silver and land and lords and wives and concubines, despite all that you possess and have, Despite all of that weighty glory, you have been weighed and you have been found wanting. You are not enough. You are not great enough. You are not God. And lastly, Parson, your kingdom is divided and it will be given to the Medes and Persians. And we're told the king, I don't know exactly how he received this message, but he indeed gave Daniel the purple clothing, the gold necklace, and declared him to be the third ruler. 
Perhaps he was still drunk, yet not yet sober, didn't know how to react. He says, okay, thank you. That sounds like gibberish. And this is how chapter 5 concludes. That very night, that very night, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Medi received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Little did Belshazzar know that he was eating, drinking, partying like there is no tomorrow. While all at the same time, just beyond the borders, the Medi and the Persian armies were preparing to take over his kingdom. That very night, as this new king was celebrating, indulging, living like there's no tomorrow, he was being pursued in that very night. His life was taken from him. I want to conclude with just a few points here. And Daniel 5 addresses, if you think about it, two main philosophies of our culture. Two main philosophies. First is this, that of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what this philosophy says in our culture. It says, be ambitious, be a go-getter, build your kingdom, work hard, do whatever you have to do, sacrifice whatever you have to, get that money, get that security, get that legacy. You can do it. Think it, and the universe will give it to you. Do what you got to do. Right? That's one main philosophy of this world. Go get it. You can do it. The second main philosophy of this world is that of Belshazzar. You only live once, baby. Live your life, your best life now. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Enjoy your youth. Eat, drink, be merry. Life is about enjoyment. Stop getting lost and trying to figure out what your purpose in life is and why you are here. Forget about all the existential stuff. Live in the moment. Be in the present. That's how you're supposed to live. Live like there's no tomorrow. You only live once. Don't have any regrets. Be true to your desires. In our culture, we see that these two leading philosophies have so many prophets and so-called gurus. You see them in the media, right? They're essentially saying this message. Either stop feeling sorry for yourself, go get it, or stop chasing all these things. Just live your life and enjoy it, and that's when you'll truly know who you are. I think Daniel 5 is, is addressing these two paradigms. And so then the question is, if we are go Going back to what does it mean to be a Christian living in between two worlds, living like Daniel and his friends as an exile in this kingdom that offers us so much decadence yet can't, but can only fill our souls but not save our souls. What do we do when given these two philosophies? Well, it's not do a little bit of both. It's not a balance that we need to strike. But it's a realization that God is the true king of the grand banquet. And what I mean by that is this. As a Christian, if you truly believe and understand that God is sovereign over your life and everything around you, that he's in control of your finances, your future, your health, in fact, if, he, if he's sovereign even over the stock markets, if, he, if he's sovereign over everything, that happens and doesn't happen. And if you trust in him 
And you're living not for riches or glory or pleasure, but you're living to please him, love him, and to know him more deeply because that satisfies you and helps you know who you are more. If you, as a Christian, understand God in that intimate, fatherly relationship, that he holds your breath in his hand, that he loves you, and that he will work everything, even the bad stuff, for your good, then it gives you the freedom, listen carefully, if, if that's your foundation, if that's your philosophy, your theology, and the way you live your life based on what we know about God, then that gives you the freedom to be ambitious, yet not to the point where you forfeit your own soul to gain the world. It gives you the freedom to trust in God and make some business moves or investments, not so that you can store up for yourself a security that can't be shaken here on earth, but so that, yeah, you can genuinely love your family, provide for them, and do your best to be good stewards. It also gives you the freedom to eat good food, enjoy good wine, travel and sightsee, and take it all in. And be led into deeper worship and awe of God who created all these things. Instead of trying to make a good meal fix your bad week. Instead of trying to drink away and wash away and numb the pain. Instead of trying to escape on an airplane somewhere only to return for the same problems to be there. If your foundation, if your life philosophy and your foundation is based upon God is sovereign, he loves me, everything is in his hands. My life is good and I don't have to simply wait for my best life later or worry about that because he loves me and he's with me and everything will work for my good. Then you don't have to balance or dabble or to do it in a small measure. You have the freedom to enjoy these things as they truly were meant to be in light of God's sovereignty. And so friends, that's the, that's the question and, 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 and challenge. I think I think the Lord wants us to, to, to wrestle with today. Because odds are most of us are, are leading our lives in one of these two philosophies. You only live once. It's all about pleasure and right now. Or store up for the future. Go get it and suffer now and you can do it. But the gospel says come to Christ who's given you a new identity like our praise leader has reminded us. Who's forgiven your sins, washed away your shame and your guilt. And invites you to his banquet, to the decadence of his grace and his mercy and his love. What better thing is there to receive than gold and silver and wine? The love of God that will never fail. The hand of God that always secures. And the grace of God that reminds us daily, even when we stumble, that he loves us. Friends, as we conclude, we challenge and encourage us to consider these things and turn to Christ who invites us to the great banquet as he is the true and everlasting king. Let's pray. I want to give us a few minutes to consider these things. I know normally I wrap us up in prayer, but... I want to ask that as we anticipate the Lord's Supper, as we anticipate the call and invitation to come to his table, to his grace and his love, let's think about the way we've been leading and living our lives, the things that we've been chasing, the things 
that we've been storing up, the things that we've tried, yet admittedly still feel empty. Can we come to Christ in our prayers now? And again, it's not going to be as clean and easy as Lord, dot, dot, dot. But come to him and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I don't, I don't think these two philosophies of life are working. I need you. I need your grace. And you need to encourage me and challenge me and lead me. Let's spend some time in prayer before we come to the invitation of the Lord's table. We thank you that all the riches and glory and honor and praise belongs to you. We know as it belongs to you, you give to your son and your sons and daughter through Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and allow our hearts indeed to grasp the things that you have set aside for your holy people, that we would consider our lives once more, that we would count the costs, that we would see the gospel way with Christ is that of joy and freedom and everlasting life. Would you continue to soften our hearts, deepen our faith, bring us to belief. I pray this in your son's name. Our worship this morning with the Lord's Supper. As we talked about the king of Babylon who throws this grand feast, who sits and drinks before his people, showing off his decadence and his pleasure. We are called to a very different table. A table of decadence, of grace, of joy, of love that was paid our own Savior's life. We're invited to the table to partake of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us so that we may be made whole. We're invited to the table today to drink of the wine that represents his blood that was shed so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we can indeed walk in this gospel way, not being limited to simply the philosophies of life. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you believe today, that Jesus is the only way for a true and beautiful and joyful life that leads to life everlasting. I want to invite you to come and partake, eat and drink of his body and blood. But I do want to give a warning. If you do not believe, if you have heard and yet still suppress that truth and indulge in sins and secret ways, ask that you refrain by taking this in an unholy way and therefore mocking God and incurring judgment on yourself. But today, if you truly believe that Christ is the only way that secures us 
that fortifies us, that forgives our sins and makes us whole again. I will ask that you quickly come and partake of this table. You'll find it in front of you. And if you don't have it, please raise your hand so that I can come and give you one as well. And just as a reminder, as we partake of this, I know this is a wafer. I know this is grape juice. It's not delicious. It's not decadent. But it's a foretaste. It's a glimpse. It's a taste of the great and grand banquet that is to come when Christ returns. So we drink this and eat this in remembrance of him. We drink this and eat this as we look forward to his return. Join with me in prayer once more. <clears throat> God, we have tasted, we have touched, we have seen a small glimpse of the grand banquet that is to come when you return. And as we drink and eat of this, we remember how you have given yourself on the cross, even to the point of death, so that our sins would be forgiven, so that our bodies, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man will be made anew. We come together this morning at your table, and we ask that you would help us to long for that great banquet, that as we sojourn and travel and endure difficulties of this sin-fallen world, that we will not settle for the decadences of this world that always leaves us unsatisfied, that we would hunger and long for what is everlasting. Christ, Lord, we pray that you would come quickly, usher us into that grand banquet where there will be no more tears and no more sorrows and no more death, that we will behold you face to face where our faith will be made sight. God, we look to you to guide our path, our ways, as we continue to live in between two worlds. Remind us of the grand banquet. Remind us you are the true king. We pray this in Jesus' name.